Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Join today. She's a writer, speaker, and life designer. It's Shanna Francesca. How are you doing today, Shanna? I'm good, Alex. How are you? I'm doing so good. We're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with be on the show. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the end. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? Yeah, so I'm from New Jersey, South Jersey. Um, That's important to anyone who's from New Jersey. and involved in growing up, gosh, um, <laughs> that's a complicated story. Um, I grew up in a super conservative Christian um, abusive household. And so what I was involved in growing up was really just trying to find my way in the world, trying to figure out who I was under under this like world of oppression and world of indoctrination. Um, and, you know, ultimately just um, figuring out how to set the stage for the life and the story that I wanted to tell with my life. With growing up in New Jersey, what is a favorite thing you like to do or visit in New Jersey that oh. people maybe not know about? Because we all hear about the Jersey Shore and that's mm. the big one. But what's yeah. something that was a big memory for you? Um. There's several parts of New Jersey that I really love. I grew up going to Wildwood, New Jersey, not like the North Jersey Shore, like the South Jersey Shore, um, which is like a super party town. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But what I really, there's a place called Grounds for Sculpture um, right around Princeton and kind of what would be called Central New Jersey if I believed in such a thing. There's this whole debate about South, Southern, Northern, and Central Jersey, if you're from New Jersey. Um, But it's this beautiful place, and there's this Stephen Star restaurant on the grounds, and it's just a beautiful place to be able to, like, walk around and bring some friends and talk and then have a beautiful meal. Um, It's just one of those places that you're like, I didn't really expect this expansive green lush place with all these beautiful amazing sculptures to be in the middle of New Jersey (laughs) with going to that place did that kind of bring that passion of the arts and crafts kind of style honestly what 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 founded my love of art um is because I really learned Martha Graham has this beautiful quote and she says um the body says what words cannot. And that's like a paraphrasing. I don't know if that's exact, but um, she's a very famous dancer. And I think what I learned really early on is that art spoke to my soul. Art was an important way for me to learn how to express myself because I wasn't allowed to truly express myself. And I think a lot of people can identify with that for various reasons. Um, And then like we would drive past grounds for sculpture all the time. And I was always so curious about it, but I really didn't go until a few years ago, but you can see many of the sculptures from the road. So I was always like driving past and thinking, gosh, this is such beautiful, amazing, massive sculptures. And I would love to be able to build something that people marvel at, not just for the purpose of marvel adding, but the way that it like connects to your soul, the way art connects to your soul, the way it speaks without words, you know? Um, but so, yeah, it had an impact on me definitely growing up in a, in a place, you know, not too far from where art is really honored. Did you take any like art classes in school that kind of helped you like even bring out that love for it? 
I did. Oh my gosh. I haven't thought about that in a long time. Yeah. I went to a really small private Christian school growing up and we did have an art class. Um, and Mrs. Richardson was our teacher. Um, and I just remember really connecting to sculpture again, sculpture really connected to sculpture. I still have many of my old like drawings and charcoal drawings. And I used to spend a lot of time with, um, just like doodling in class, but, but they turned out these really beautiful ink doodles, they, like doodle and quotation marks, but they were just so expressive. I, I drew eyes a lot. Eyes were something I was always so fascinated with, with, with the, you know, people always like you, you can see someone's, you know, soul by looking into their eyes. If you're really looking and you know, the eyes are the window to the soul and, and all of this. And I think I just, I just connected with being able to actually truly see people and know that there's everyone has a story. Every, everyone has a story. And, yes. And, and it's so visible sometimes just by looking in someone's eyes. I remember doing art classes and I was the worst art person in the world. But oh, please, everyone, everyone has a way to connect with art. It just doesn't mean everyone has to love it. But I think <laughs> that kind of helped me become creative and kind of like doing my own style. Maybe not the yeah. traditional art way, but like even yes. when I make videos and stuff, I come yes. up with that artistic. And I think my mom has like these projects that I made and there was a sundial that we had made out of clay. And I look at this and I'm like, okay, this is actually pretty good for me when I was that age, but it's kind of like you remember why you were making that at the time. And so I think art is such a great way because there's not, not a one way of doing it. There's so many ways people can express and do the project. Yeah. Yeah. Art is expression. It is social commentary. It is whatever we want it to be. It's poetry without words. It is sometimes with words because poetry is art to me you know people always say I'm not artistic and I'm like but you know even if you're an accountant you're a lawyer lawyers are creative with language accountants are creative I don't want to say they're creative with numbers because that makes it sound like what they do is illegal but but (laughs) they are creative right like they're they're trying to figure out you know how to help a business to succeed in a very specific way or a person to succeed or you know, they're interpreting law that that is art, right? Like there's an art to so much, so much of life, you know, when we infuse it with intention. You talked about not being able to express yourself. Was it hard for your friends to kind of get to know who you are or when you were in those settings, you were able to express and be open with them? I didn't have a lot of friends growing up. I mean, you can't when you're growing up in a traumatic environment, right? Or you've got to hide yourself because no one can know what's going on behind closed doors. Otherwise, you're not sure what would happen. And and I had seen the consequences of opening up because at like five years old, I was pulled in front of child services. I was almost, ta- almost taken away from my family. And I thought to myself, you know, I know the devil that I live with, but I don't know the devil I don't live with. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously that wasn't the language I used at the age of five, but, you know, I ultimately lied to them so that I could stay with my family. Um, you know, I said whatever I had to do to make them seem like they were comfortable and I could stay because they just didn't, the world outside of that was so scary. So no, people weren't, I wasn't really close to a lot of people growing up and, and art was my expression. You know, the thing I think about is 
constantly. I started writing. I still have my journals, my very first journal. I, I journals from the time I was like seven. Um, you know, the, the page doesn't judge people do. So we can write whatever we want on a page. We can draw whatever we want. Those, that piece of paper isn't judging just we do. And so I, I learned very early on the power of expression in, in ways that didn't involve my words, because I would be judged for my words. I would be chastised for my words. I would be ostracized or hurt physically, literally for my words. But, but what happened inside my journals, that was private. Fast forward to now where social media and anytime people write things, it's always comments galore, positive, negative. When you talk about journaling, is that something that you still do because you don't want to be able to put it out there and the world being able to say whatever they want? Yeah. Not everyone has a right or an access to my thoughts, right? They are the one thing that is completely private until we choose to share them. However, I am a very open person and I share very openly a lot of aspects of myself. And yet there is so much that I keep to myself. And so, yeah, I still keep a journal. I keep it right next to my meditation mat um, because there's, there's private struggles. There's, there's private thoughts. There's things I'm working through that, that I don't necessarily have the language fully formed to a place where I feel comfortable in sharing. And again, not everyone has the right to hear it. Mm-hmm. And people so often, you know, believe, stand behind their quote unquote, like digital anonymity. And it's, it's so harmful because people don't have to deal with the consequences of their actions, not in real life necessarily, unless there's somebody famous. Um, I just think that we really need to get back to the place of recognizing if we wouldn't say it to someone's face, then we shouldn't say it at all. Right. If we don't have the gall to, 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 to actually say it to someone's face, then we should keep it to ourselves because, um, we don't have the right to speak into someone's life and we don't have the right to have an opinion necessarily about people's life just because they're choosing to share themselves digitally. doesn't mean we get, we get to have an opinion and tell them that they're wrong because we can only see the world from our very, very narrow view of it. As you're growing up, were you trying to think about what was that dream job or that dream goal that you were wanting to accomplish? I mean, at first I wanted to be a ballet dancer, but I'm six foot one. So by the time I was 10, I realized that wasn't going to happen. And then pretty quickly within a couple of years, I, I realized that being an interior designer was a thing and that's what I wanted to do. And I, that stayed with me until I decided to go to college. And I was like, I think I'm going to do it. I'm going to go for it. You know, being an interior designer the way they looked at it is when really difficult things would happen in my household, I would rearrange the furniture. And I now look back and the language I give it is that I was, I was, I was breaking my association with what was and setting the stage for the story I wanted my life to tell rather than the story that someone else was trying to write over my life and trying to force on me. And so, you know, when I, eventually I was like, okay, you know, to be able to, because so much of our physical environment is a direct reflection of how we see ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to empower people to, to give language to the story they want their life to tell. And then for me to be able to represent that 
in a physical environment so they could see the most authentic as I see it right the most authentic version of them reflected back to them is just such a powerful thing to feel seen in our home which we spend about two-thirds of our life in is such a really powerful thing um, so I don't take it lightly and you know I didn't take it lightly back then so you know it was just kind of a natural thing for me when you rearranged the furniture, did your family kind of see that this might be a direction you want to go in or were they just confused why you were doing this? <laughs> At some point, my parents definitely were like, stop rearranging the <laughs> furniture. Um, and I was like, sure. And then like six months later, I would rearrange it anyway. Um, y- yeah, I mean, it was just, I don't think they ever thought I'd become an interior designer. I don't think, you know, for a long time I can, I considered being an engineer and an architect and those were just so male dominated and really didn't feel friendly towards women at the time. I still, I think in some aspects do not. Um, so I, you know, I kind of gravitated towards being an interior designer and, and, and I think ultimately the reason was because I recognized the power of interior space. We don't set up lawn chairs and stare at the outside of buildings, right? We spend our time inside of them. And so I I ultimately understood that the inside of the building is the place where the most impact is truly had. As you were learning more and more about the interior design business, was there any inspirations, company, an interior designer that kind of inspired you? Honestly, I was mostly inspired by architects. Um, And then I came to understand that architects actually aren't really don't spend much time focused on the inside of buildings, but I always loved the language of architecture um, and the grandeur of it and the, and the evocativeness of, of it and the way it just, you know, evokes emotion in us. Um, And so I was mostly inspired by, and still in many ways are mostly inspired by architects um, more than anything um, but I kind of translate that into interior space. So yeah, I had a lot of, a lot of people that inspired me, but it wasn't, it wasn't specifically interior design. Were you looking at college or an education field outside of New Jersey, or were you wanting to stay local to be with family? Oh, I definitely did not want to be with family, but I grew up poor. So there was no one to like sign for crazy loans for me. (laughs) So I went to county college and I paid for that. And I worked all through college to pay for my books and my art supplies and all the things. Um, And uh, yeah, I really wanted to leave, but there just wasn't that possibility for me. But luckily, one of the top rated interior design schools in the country was, you know, 45 minutes away. And so I was able to, you know, commute and go to school there. Um, and it was, I went to Philadelphia University, which is now part of Thomas Jefferson, if anyone's familiar with the Philly area. Um, and I'm so thankful that I went there. Some of the teachers I encountered, I'm still friends with to this day. So um, yeah, I really wanted to leave. Uh, I really wanted to go to Carnegie Mellon, actually, for, for engineering. And then I decided architecture. And then when I changed interior design, I was like, okay, well, (laughs) and I I thought about going to school in New York, but that was just like so expensive. Um, So local it was, and you know, I I don't regret any of it. See, I, I, when people think about local schools, I went local and I at least got the experience of going to college, but I'm still close to where I'm from. And I still got to that balance 
What's the biggest thing you learned about yourself when you're working and going to school and paying it for yourself for someone that's listening that might be about to go through that experience? I think what I learned is we can only do so much and there's, there's something's got to give, you know, and ultimately you're going to need help. You know, doing all those things is nearly impossible. And I literally had a nervous breakdown at one point um, and had to go from working like 30 to 30, you know, 32 hours a week down to like 20, you know, and that was still a lot. Um, because the interior design program at Philly U was like one credit shy of being a five-year course. Um, yeah, one credit shy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, and so it was just a really, really intense program and it really prepared me for life, but honestly, it's an untenable situation, right? Like it just creates this like cycle in our lives. way of living but yeah I I mean I I loved college and I loved all that I learned and I loved the experience but honestly I wish um that I had been able to find another way to not do all those things (laughs) but ultimately I didn't and I made it through and I made it through beautifully so you know, it is what it is. You do what you have to do. Honestly, when you, when you want to achieve what you want to achieve, you do what you have to do. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's healthy, but it's what you got to do. Looking at your college journey, is there anything you would wish you got to do or did differently? Like Mm -hmm. instead of community, you kind of talked about going through that path a different way, but from the school side or kind of the personal side, is there anything you would done differently? Yeah, I wish I, I wish I could have had the opportunity to live on campus. You know, I wish I would have had that experience because I think it would have changed things for me. But ultimately, my, my, my father wouldn't let me, you know, live on campus because it wasn't a Christian school. Um, And so it just wasn't an allowable option for me. I was 17 when I went to college, so I wasn't legally able to decide. Yeah, I graduated high school at 17, went to college at 17. So um, there was a lot that I wasn't legally able to decide for myself yet. Um, And then by the time I was, I really didn't feel like I had the autonomy. I mean, that was kind of the sinister nature of growing up in that kind of environment is that you don't believe there's any other choice because fear is kind of, not kind of, it's used to control you. So yeah, I, I really wish that I had, but, but ultimately I wouldn't change. I mean, ultimately I wouldn't change a single part of my story because I would be a different person. Mm-hmm. But if, if that opportunity had been there, I think it would have changed. It would have changed a lot because I would have experienced the world in a completely different way outside of this kind of very programmed world. I had indoctrinated world I'd grown up in. Is there something you've learned there that you still use today? It's kind of like the high thing that anytime that subject or that kind of quote comes around, Mm. you remember it and you always utilize it. Something a teacher might've said. Well, yeah. So one of my teachers there, her name is Lisa Phillips, and we still keep in contact actually. Um, I just had an article published uh, where I talked about my relationship with her is where a lot had happened before my first 
like before the hardest semesters of that program happened. My first love had died. I had nearly cut my thumb off with a table saw, all these like really difficult things. And this teacher didn't really know all the details. She knew some of it, but she didn't know all of it. And she just kind of pulled me aside and was like, you know, I, I see that you're struggling. Like, here's some things that I think that could help. And she just kind of took me under her wing. And I don't know that it's a quote specifically as much as it's a feeling, you know, she, she helped me to feel seen. And honestly, she threw me a lifeline when I needed it the most. And, and so I guess what I learned is that help is available if we're willing to look for it and to see it. Right. But if we're keeping our head down and, and we don't think that there's any help available. It isn't because we're not looking for it. But when we look for it, somehow it finds us. Um, and, and quite honestly, I think she saved me in a lot of ways. I don't know if I would have made, been able to make it through without her. With that teacher being open and kind of taking you under your her yeah. wing, did that help bring like a positive momentum where it's like, I, I need to do this. This is what I've been made for. And yeah. I want to accomplish everything. Yeah. yeah. It was like, she saw the potential because I knew ultimately she wouldn't have reached out to me if she thought I didn't belong in the program. Right. Like she wouldn't yep. have taken me under her wing. She wouldn't have invested that moment, that time to say, Hey, I really, I, I value you as a human being. I see your creativity. I see what you're capable of. And I want to empower you to be able to use that creativity. And, and here's the way you can channel it. Like ultimately, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. After college, what was next for you? What, what was that first job? What was Ooh. that first experience like? Well, I was one of those lucky people who graduated college right before the Great Recession. Um, I graduated in 2007 and in 2008, the whole world died. Um, and, you know, economically. And so in 2009, I was laid off and, and it forced me to like divert. And, and I had originally been working in residential and I moved to commercial and kind of took a serpentine path and then got, you know, started doing some commercial work. And, you know, as the economy recovered, you know, I was able to kind of get better and better paying jobs, but it was tough for a really long time. I mean, you weren't really sure (laughs) that you were going to be able to keep a job or have a job or any of those things. I mean, it was really tough. Um, yeah, eventually, you know, made it into commercial work. And then, you know, now when I started my own firm five and a half years ago, went back to residential. So kind of went back to my roots. Um, but yeah, graduating at first, um, it was probably the worst job I've ever had. But, you know, the economy was already kind of showing, you know, by 2008, you know, when I was looking for a new job in 2007, I was, you know, searching and I, and I was literally in 2008, right as the economy was crashing, I literally was getting ready to get offered a job and the economy just kind of like crashed overnight. Oh. And someone was like, I was going in for my second interview and they were getting ready to offer me a job. And they were like, we were fully prepared to offer you a job today. And it was a top 50 interior design firm around the country, like top 50. Oh. Like, and they were like, we just laid off a hundred people this morning. Wow. Yeah. So it was like, woof. like it was tough. Yeah. To be like, okay. Yeah. Like to know that you're that good. Right. And to be like, I'm that good. 
and finally feel it and know it and then it, like have to go back to the job that you hate. <laughs> it was a really tough time. It was a really tough time. Do you, do you, when you graduated and you talked about that job being like the worst you've had, was it more trying to learn and kind of gain that experience so that when you go to that next firm, you have that kind of qualification ready to go? But then when you got that um, time where they said they can't offer and you had to go back there, was it a way to kind of prove yourself again and try to learn as much as you can? No, it was just a terrible place to work. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah. No, it was just a really toxic culture, a really, really toxic culture. Um, but again, you know, when you grow up pretty crappy, you don't know what toxic looks like because toxic is what you're used to mm-hmm. until I started being exposed to non-toxic cultures. And then I started to realize, oh, wait, this is really terrible. <laughs> um and it happens slowly and it takes a really, really long time. But no, that was just a terrible place to work. <laughs> During the recession, did you ever think about going in a different industry or was your main focus was interior design and stuff? I, yeah, I did think about going into a different industry, but ultimately I couldn't leave. I knew what I wanted to accomplish as an interior designer. And, you know, as I didn't, I knew that the impact was so great. I, I just, no, I couldn't, I couldn't fully walk away. There were so many times where I considered it and so many different opportunities presented themselves. Um, but ultimately I just kept trying to make my way back uh, to interior design and ultimately always did. So a fun topic with interior design, a lot of TV shows are out there kind of like train space. Well, that show ain't on anymore. I but know, so little, so old, but I know what you mean. I remember watching <laughs> train spaces like kids yeah. where they make over the page. Yes. They yeah, make yeah, over yeah. these kids where I'm like, can I have that? Can, can I have that? Right. Right. Did that, is that kind of representation of interior design different than what you feel interior design or is it a good yes. like combination? Mm. No, that's not interior design. That's more decorating. Um, And it's not a knock against. It's just not the same. You know, I think so as an interior designer, like I I have a bit, you know, an understanding of building code. I'm working with architects and engineers and um, I I project manage all of my projects. So I'm the one bringing in engineers and architects uh, typically on projects. Sometimes architects or engineers bring me in, but typically I'm the one bringing them in. So it's much more technical than I think people think. And perhaps I make it even more technical. I kind of take on maybe more than many interior designers do, but I still think there's many who do kind of take on that kind of project management because they've got this deeper connection with the client and the client's intention for their, for their home. Was there always that idea of owning your own firm right out of the gate or did it kind of take a few years to kind of be like, I think I can do this. It took me a while. I always knew I wanted to to start my own business, but I wasn't entirely sure if it was going to be an interior design firm or not. And I wasn't really sure what it, you know, what it would look like. And then, you know, five and a half years ago, the firm kind of started itself because people started coming to me privately and asking me to, to design their homes, their offices, their restaurants, all of these things. And I was like, Oh, I think actually I have a, business. I think it started itself. I think I need to just like embrace that and be more intentional about it. And that's exactly mm-hmm. what I did. When you were creating kind of like the name and the concept, what was going through that process? Give that design kind of creative yeah. side. So at first, when I first 
started the business, it, like I said, it started itself. And so I just kind of used a placeholder name. So the business originally founded as SF design. So it's just my initials and then design. Right. And I was just like, let's just do it. Right. Let's just move forward. And then we'll figure out what this, what we want it to become in a minute. Right. And so I just gave myself time. So it wasn't until three years ago when I took the business full time that I was like, you know what? I, I want to, I really want to rebrand. I really want the name to be able to encompass all the different directions we want to take the business and the brand and to be able to connect with people. And ultimately I finally found the name. Um, A friend of mine kind of connected me with a, a similar word and I started kind of diving into the entomology and then diving into the history, you know, the, well, which is the entomology, but etymology. Um, and just started to understand all the related words. And then I found, so consonate is the name of my business and it means to arrange or blend together skillfully as parts or elements put together in a harmonious, precisely appropriate or elegant manner. And so it's exactly what we do. It just happens to be a defunct word. It's, it's not used anymore. Um, but it sounds familiar, right? It sounds familiar enough because it kind of sounds like consonant, which yep. people know is like consonants and vowels, right? Um, but consonate is not a familiar word. It's not a word they're, fam- but it's close enough, right? And so it feels familiar, but it's not. Um, and it has such a powerful meaning that the minute I found it, I was like, that's it. That's the name. You know, it essentially means harmony by design, which is what we do. So yeah, absolutely, you know, designed the brand and then the name kind of found me really is how it happened. What would you say your style is as a designer? Don't have one. So I have a personal style for myself, but when it comes to my clients, I, I, you know, I kind of love that question because I think people expect there to be a style. And I think that has happened so much because of marketing and branding, right? So that people create their own personal style and just kind of create variations of that so that their style is recognizable. They become a brand around it. But for me, I take very seriously the fact that this is my client's homes and that it is about reflecting them. They need to feel seen in their own home. And so it's not about me. I do the work and then I leave and it's you who's living in that space. And it's a vision board for your life. It is the stage from which you tell the story of your life. It's not about me at all. It is, it is my interpretation of who you are, right? So me as an artist is important in the process and yet, it's not about me. So, you know, it is, I don't have a style. And, and when you look on my website and you look at all the different projects, every single one is a different style. Every single one has a different note, a different understanding because they're all directly connected to each and every client. I like that answer because it shows adaptability where you're not so focused on one thing. And that when you mentioned it's all about what the clients want, you can be able to go in so many different directions as long as it's meeting what the client wants. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's many times, you know, clients or say, this is the style I want. And I'm like, let's just push pause on that. Right. Like, it's like, let's hold off on talking about the style. Let's talk about you. I want to get to know you. And many of my clients, you know, most, all of my clients are like significantly older than me. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, it's interesting to, to sit down with them and be like, what is it the story that you want your life to tell? And they might be in their fifties or their sixties. So my older clients are in their eighties, you know, and, and they're like, 
okay, but I don't know how much of my life is left to tell, tell, tell a story. I'm like, but you're still here. So there's still story to tell. So what does this next chapter look like, right? We, we want to authentically connect with this next chapter. Are you mostly in a certain area or are you international all over the yeah yeah I right now I haven't worked with a with a person internationally yet like so no one outside of the U.S. yet but um, I've worked with clients all over the country um, and it's really just about a connection with the client wherever you are we'll figure out how to make it work and typically it's like hybrid like I go there in person and then we might have a couple meetings via zoom and then I'm back out there but I I really love to physically be present and my clients' homes it, to take it all in and to take in who they are, because there's still a, even though we can see each other through Zoom, there's still a narrow view that happens. And I need to see where the dust bunnies happen. I need to see where the <laughs> clutter is. I need to see real life. I need to see your real life so that I can understand how to facilitate it in a way that, that is, that supports you in the story you want your life to tell, right? Like if we, if I don't understand how to support you, then I can't do it. So it's yep. really important that, you know, clients trust me and, and they're, they feel comfortable being authentic and vulnerable with me. What would you say has been the most challenging part of being an entrepreneur and a kind of a CEO of your own company? All of it. <laughs> <laughs> every last minute. No, every last minute calls calls you into a deeper, more intentional version of yourself. It's, it's constantly challenging who you see yourself as, how you see the world in the narrow ways that we see the world. It's constantly asking you to grow, to stretch, Mm -hmm. to make room for more, to, to experience or to understand others experience in new and expanding ways. It's, it's challenging you as a person I think that's the most important part. You know, if you want, if your business is going to succeed and you have to be like long-term, right? Because sinister people can still make really a lot of money, but ultimately they get found out, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like Enron eventually got found out all these different people, they eventually get found out. So if you really want lasting power, you've got to be the kind of person who is truly authentically there and owns up to your mistakes um, to your bad decisions and, and ultimately hold yourself accountable to, to tap into deeper wisdom, to gain understanding, to constantly seek knowledge, uh, and to seek the people who have knowledge in areas of which you don't. With the pandemic and a lot of things where you're not able to travel to clients' houses, how was that challenging or was it not stopping you to be able to accomplish what you want? Fortunately, it didn't stop too much. I mean, we did meet a little bit more via Zoom, um, but ultimately we kind of came up with a plan really early on where my assistant, um, she very early on in her life had an autoimmune disorder. And so we just decided she was not going to be out on site. My design assistant could be, she would not be, we kind of separated ourselves. And then with clients, it would just be like, Hey, we'll meet, but we'll sit at least six feet apart. We'll wear masks. We'll keep, you know, perhaps windows open or keep a fan blowing or something so that we're, we're getting the air moving. Um, or we'll just stay like at least six feet or maybe 10 or 15 feet apart. 
and will still be in your home. Cause I mean, many of my clients have really large homes, right? So mm-hmm. there's no need for us to be like on top of each other. Some don't, but many do, especially like clients in the city, they don't necessarily have like expansive space, but you know, we could figure out a way to kind of socially distance ourselves and still be in the home. Um, it get, would get a little tricky once like construction commenced because we'd have to try to like keep everybody away from each other. But, you know, ultimately I, I only, only two clients during the pandemic, did, like shut down, did I do entirely virtually all the rest of them we, we met in person and never no one knock on wood like no one ever like got covid like if they got like we were just we we kind of talked about it early on like if you get covid you tell me and i'll stay away and if i get it like because i had clients who were like in their 80s and like Mm -hmm. were really susceptible and then like my assistant you know having an autoimmune disorder and one of my best friends has an autoimmune disorder so like and i had other people with you know comorbidities and things in my life and so you know it was just a matter of like let's just be responsible and responsive and make sure that we're 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 talking all these things through and and it's ultimately like kind of why I started my own business so I could be able to say yes to the kinds of people that I really want to work with who are the kind of people who are going to be authentic um and so that was never really an issue thank god (laughs) You talked about earlier in the interview about your passion for journaling and you are a writer. Was that kind of something that you wanted to continue doing in a different way than just journaling in your journal? Yeah, I had started writing poetry pretty early on and I had a couple of poems published, nothing like national goodness, but, (laughs) but like as a teenager, I had a couple of poems, like poems show up in like published stuff and and um, ultimately just realized that, you know, I'm also neurodivergent, I have ADHD. So writing was a way of expressing myself when words didn't always come out the way that I wanted to, because my brain was moving so fast and my mouth just could not keep up. And so sometimes what came out of my mouth was like blobby and unrefined and, and, you know, I've learned obviously better now, but, you know, I would sometimes just had to work it out on paper. Um, but, but yeah, I think I've always connected with the pen and the paper and with writing in a way that I was like, I'm meant to share, you know, my thoughts because I, I started to recognize how powerful words really are and how, even though my upbringing really, can I say sucked? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I try to like clean up my language on, on podcasts. Um, my, my upbringing really sucked. There's really no way around it. I also recognized that there was just about no person on the planet who didn't in some way identify with at least the emotions that I felt and all the things and, and feeling despair or feeling, you know, lonely or feeling, you know, what all these different things that I went through so they could connect with what I was writing about in some aspect. Right. And, and so, yeah, I just, I, I find writing to be so very powerful, even still, you know, even though, you know, we've gotten so attached to seeing to, to, to digital media and can, you know, just consuming content at a rate that's like unimaginable. I think we still feel a connection with, the written word, um, when we slow down enough to actually take it in. 
as a speaker and going on podcasts and sharing your story and being open about it, how has that been for you and the impact maybe a listener has had and kind of maybe being able to relate and kind of reaching out and wanting to just say that they thank you for sharing your story? It's been really, such a good question. It's been really good. I mean, ultimately I've, I've been going through and healing from it, right? Otherwise I couldn't talk about it the way that I do. Like I'd be mm-hmm. sobbing. <laughs> I'd be sobbing. I'm laughing because it's not funny. Uh, sometimes all you can do is laugh at something even when it's not funny. Um, I, I wouldn't be able to talk about it. I wouldn't be able to share it the way I do. I would be angry, right? And I'm not angry. I forgive it all. Um, I forgive it all because I value myself so much that I know that I had to, to truly be able to write my own story. Otherwise the anger would write my story for me. And I've had a lot of people reach out from some, so I've, I've recorded a lot of podcasts at this point. Not all of them have been published, but the ones that have been, you know, I've had the hosts reach out and be like, I've had a couple people reach out and, and thank you so much for sharing your story because you know ultimately i think we just want to be seen and understood and mm-hmm. when we hear even part of someone's stories that sounds like ours all of a sudden it's like okay i have permission to have experienced this to heal from it and to be powerful on the other side of it or to not feel powerful yet to be in the midst of it to be in the mud to be in the mire to be in the thick of it you know, to just be feeling it all wherever you are. It's okay. It's not just okay. It's where you are. Right. And it's powerful because you get to, to experience it. You get to live it. You get to know it and you get to embody it. And then you get to decide what it means and you get to decide your purpose and you get to decide who you are on the other side of it. All of it is a choice. We talked earlier how everyone has a story and I always look at some people are able to share it and some people kind of keep it private, but when they hear something from someone else's story that they can relate to, it kind of gives them a feeling where there's someone out there that they can reach out to. And I had that experience where I was able to share my story on someone else's podcast and I'm getting these messages and it kind of makes me, and I was like, I'm not going to talk about this for years. I don't feel right doing it, but it kind of gave me some like kind of power or some kind of feeling that it was meant to be, it was meant for that opportunity because I want to be able to help someone. Do you have that kind of similar feeling and where you talked about your healing from when you're talking about it, that it's, you feel that you're doing a good thing and sharing for someone that might be going through something similar. Yeah. Ultimately, Brene Brown talks about this, that shame, you know, wants us to keep it quiet. And I ultimately learned that a big part of my healing even now is sharing and allowing the light to it, right? Like letting the sun shine on it, let it be seen so that I know it's not, it's not shameful. It's just part of who I am and, and people will have their opinions and other people's opinions are none of my business. Their opinions about who I am and about my life are none of my business and they're entirely shaded by their own lived experience and their own view of the world. And it has absolutely nothing to do with me, not really. Right. And so like, 
yeah, I, I think there's an incredible power in sharing our story, whether other people identify with it or not. Ultimately, I know that they do, you know, um, and kind of, you know, finding allies now, I, you know, I no longer am part of the Christian church. I no longer, I'm, I'm ex-evangelical, um, you know, finding these other people who have had this lived experience, who have been through many of the same things that I have and have found a beautiful life on the other side of it has been a really incredible journey and is a journey I'll be on for the rest of my life, kind of unpacking all of it. And to be able to share that journey with people is so powerful because it, it gives people permission to be on a journey themselves, to not have figured it out because we're just, how do you, I don't even know how you figure it out. <laughs> I just know we just learn more and we keep moving forward or we just keep moving um, in whatever direction we're going. So yeah, I, I think it's very, very powerful when we share our story. So what does the future look like for you? What are you hoping to accomplish in the next few years, personally and professionally? How much time do we have, Alex? <laughs> as much time as you want. <laughs> um, no, just taking the business, um, taking Consonate um, internationally, working with people all over the world is a really important thing. Um, we're working on consonate experiences. So creating these kind of um, these experiences where we bring in different, different practitioners of different things, whether it be about nutrition or health or wellness or mental health, or, you know, all these different aspects and creating these highly curated experiences for small groups of people around the world. And, um, and, and really focusing on what is life design mean and, and my speaking career and, and, and having, you know, sharing more and getting, you know, more pieces published. And I love the challenge of writing and sharing my story in different ways. I challenge myself with each piece that I write, you know, where people ask about my backstory, I insist on writing it fresh each time. Mm -hmm. So that I'm using different language each time and I'm viewing it from a different place each time, which is just like such a beautiful way of looking at it um and it forces me to kind of kind of unpeel the onion a little bit more right like like experience healing on a deeper level and so yeah i just see i see us just becoming a more and myself becoming a more and more intentional brand really diving into what does it mean to live your life intentionally? What does it mean to design your life? What does it mean to be in harmony, not just with yourself and your story and your life, but the people around you and, and the earth and, and to really embrace what does it mean to take up space in this world beautifully and intentionally? The final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge? I would say that reading and, and diving and, and connecting with other people's stories. I mean, that's ultimately how I found my way to healing is, is is discovering the mentors that maybe they could only be in my head, right? Because I didn't know them in real life, but they existed on the page and they had something valuable to teach me. And even if I didn't have direct access to them, I had, I had access to them through the written word, right? Mm -hmm. or, and now it could be through a podcast, through an audio book, you know, there's, there's a way to tap into someone else's lived experience and to see, they might be just a few steps ahead of us and they've got something that, that can help us be, be really valuable as as far as our, our journey and healing and our journey and moving forward and finding and trusting our own wisdom. 
Shannon, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Yeah, thank you, Alex. I really appreciate you having me. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to the full-length episode in video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.